0: Hello and welcome. You are listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agriculture literacy discussion. This podcast is hosted by me, Will Fett, from Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation. Throughout this season, we'll be joined by friends of Agriculture in the Classroom from across the country as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture. And we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. as i said my name is will fett but today we have a special treat and your guest host is becky sponholz from florida agriculture in the classroom today's episode comes all the way from sunny florida becky i'll turn it over to you to introduce your guests
1: hi i'm eric cassiano i work for the university of florida tropical aquaculture lab my job title is assistant extension scientist I'm essentially a statewide extension agent for the ornamental fish aquaculture production industry here in the state of Florida. So I help the uh, producers with numerous problems that they may encounter that can be regulatory issues, that can be filling out a grant, that can be just, you know, farm management, fish production, or aquatic species production. So really anything that they encounter that's an issue for them, sometimes that just entails talking to them. Um, I also work with schools that have aquaculture programs and help them navigate the numerous programs for their students, but also build systems and maintain fish and source fish and just really accomplish any sort of goal that they want to accomplish with their aquaculture program. And then, of course, interfacing with the general public and helping them understand the basic definitions of aquaculture and what that means and more importantly what it doesn't mean and promoting our industry within the state of Florida.
2: Before we get too much into the industry can you tell us what your educational background is?
1: Yes I got a bachelor of science from Hawaii Pacific University and then I went to the University of Florida and got a master of science with an emphasis on aquaculture.
2: So the aquaculture industry is definitely something that every state doesn't have. So can you give a, a brief overview of what is all kind of included in our industry here in Florida?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, Florida's really unique. Uh, yeah, you're right. Not every state has aquaculture as a dominant agriculture, but there tends to be aquaculture within every state on some level florida is pretty unique i would say the trademark for florida aquaculture is its diversity we grow a lot of different things sort of a mirror of our eclectic personalities within the state as well our number one product is ornamental fish which are tropical fish for the aquarium hobby trade and even within that there's you know many different species hundreds of, of varieties 400 500 different varieties at this point it was up to 800 but it's since been slimmed down our number two product out of the state of Florida is clams. And even within clams, we have multiple species that we grow. It's primarily the northern quahog, like little necks and the cherry stones and stuff like that. So number three would be at this point in time is alligators, but it tends to flip-flop with aquatic plants, which is we'll call number four. Uh, we grow alligators for mostly their hide for purses and belts and boots and things like that. But we also utilize the meat and other parts of the animal as well. So it's a pretty interesting aquaculture industry. Most of the aquatic plants that we grow in the state of Florida are again for the ornamental trade. And there's a lot of different varieties, almost up to a thousand different varieties of aquatic plants that we grow in the state of Florida. And then number five is food fish. That's actually one of our faster growing sectors with tilapia coming on stronger and stronger. So, um, we just we tend to grow many different species within the state of Florida, and that tends to be our hallmark our trademark that makes us kind of different from other states. So if you think about the catfish industry, you know, Mississippi grows a lot of catfish, but it's just one species, right? Three times more the farm gate value, but we grow many different species. So we're kind of known for diversity within the state.
2: And I would think people would think, oh, Florida, yeah, we're surrounded by water, but everything that you just named, that is all grown on land, correct? Yes,
1: it is. Well, no, there's a caveat there. The clam industry utilizes natural lease areas, which are just offshore, a couple of miles, if even. And so those are grown in brackish natural waters, but most of the other ones are grown on land. Yeah, absolutely. We are currently looking at regulation to free up net pen aquaculture within the Gulf they're actually doing a, a project right now just off the coast of Sarasota, which I think is going to happen, where they're going to look at growing some of the marine fish species just offshore. I think it's about 40 miles offshore, if I'm not mistaken.
2: In the state of Florida, because I just have no idea, does the general public support our aquaculture industry? I mean, I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, agriculture in general, and a lot of people, there's things that they don't understand, so that's misinformation. But like the aquaculture industry, like I don't know what the general public kind of views it as.
1: Right. Yeah, it's pretty mixed, I would say. I mean, there are different sectors. I would say overall, it's supportive. Most of the people that I encounter, uh, once they learn where angelfish come from, or whatever the fish would be, they're fascinated by it. and They want to know more about that. So that's great. It really just depends on the person, obviously. But there are definitely factors of people that don't support aquaculture. And that's that's fine. I mean, you know, there's both sides to it, of course. But, you know, For me, it's just about, you know, make an educated decision. Don't make a decision based on passion alone. You know, understand what's out there and understand what's available to you. But I would say, yeah, overall, I I would say they're definitely supportive. And it also is, you know, split into different groups because when you think about aquaculture, it is very different, right? When we talk about those offshore net pens for marine fish, you know, there's definitely support on our end, but there's definitely non-supportive entities as well. You definitely don't see that so much when it gets to aquatic plant production or something like that. You know, it depends on what you're growing and what you're trying to promote.
2: So in the state of Florida, we mostly graze freshwater ornamental fish, right? Or do we also have equally as much saltwater?
1: So within the ornamental fish world, I would say about 90%, and this is by volume, not by price, 90% of what we grow is freshwater. Okay. That's I thought. Yeah. I don't have the exact number on it, but I think there's probably about 70 to 80 fish farms, maybe more, and maybe there's 10 or 12, maybe 15 that do saltwater fish. And so it's, it's not a big number. It's not a big percentage. The value of marine fish is much higher. So when you consider that, it's much more lucrative to grow marine fish if you can. It's kind of apples and oranges. They're very different creatures. I mean, besides being fish, of course, but... <laughs> The systems are different the methodologies are different and so it's a little trickier to grow saltwater fish i will say within the past i guess we're going on 15 years now there's been kind of a resurgence within the marine fish world and we're growing more species now than than we have in the past which makes sense but there's kind of a push to do so as well from conservation angles and so that's helped push things along as far as growing marine fishes are concerned
2: in the ornamental aspect or the edible aspect or both
1: in the ornamental aspect you know obviously there's both that are affected you know it's sort of people want to save the prettier fish that's kind of (laughs) how that goes yeah so i would say from the ornamental aspect but also food i mean food's being explored too as well there's always different species that are being looked at but we've really just started to break the surface of the iceberg as far as what species are available for production when you look at saltwater fish or marine fish
2: One of the things I remember when we were writing our Agriculture Literacy Day book a few years ago on aquaculture, there was a big discussion on aquaculture versus seafood. So can you explain what the difference may be? When we start growing, like I know they grow salmon out in the ocean in big nets. Is that aquaculture or is that seafood? I don't know what the difference is.
1: (laughs) Right. So I call it an artificial population. I don't know what you want to call it. It's a a farming population, but Typically, aquaculture is anything that's farmed, so the salmon would fall into that aquaculture category. Fisheries tends to be you're fishing from a wild population and utilizing that for a food source. So I consider both to be seafood. I mean, seafood comes from an aquaculture source or a fisheries source. I assume that's what the debate was about. But basically, you know, aquaculture utilizes essentially a farmed population that supplies food or or to the hobby trade and then you know fisheries is is utilizing a wild population and trying to understand what's going on in the wild so that we don't overfish it and to extinction and using that wild population versus creating an artificial population that we can consume.
2: Yeah, I think it was like what we catch out in the ocean versus yeah. what we are growing here on land. We grow clams. We put them out in the Gulf, but we grow them in leased land and in bags and all that. But right. with like stone crab, we just go out, grab them, take the claw, and put them back, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's a wild population, right? So it's about you know, being in control of that reproduction.
2: So going back to, we grow a lot of freshwater, I'm going to call them aquarium, fish tank fish here in Florida. How do we grow those here in Florida?
1: Oh, (laughs) these guys are good, man. I'm going to give the plug to the farmers here. They're really good at what they do. It depends is the answer. So we grow a lot of different species within the state of Florida. I don't have the number, but it's in the hundreds. And it depends on the reproductive strategy of the fish, but it also depends on, you know, development time and things of that nature. A lot of times we'll use a generalized fish species. You'll set up the males and the females. Sometimes that's single male and single female. Sometimes that's a group. You'll get them to spawn either voluntarily or induced. And once they lay eggs and then there's, I'm speaking very generalized because we have different types of strategies, but the eggs will hatch in a sort of a hatching container depends on the different species. So all this will happen within a building, usually in in smaller tanks. And then once the fry, probably held for a few days, depending on species again, and then be stocked out into ponds. Most of our farmers use earthen ponds to do the grow out, like the juvenile grow out phase. The ponds are 20 by 40 feet, maybe six feet deep. And some farms have thousands of them. Some farms have, you know, 100. Some farms have 20. It just depends. We have all different sizes here in Florida. They'll spend their juvenile life phase in this pond they'll be fed but they'll also be grazing on aquatic bugs and animals that are living in the water as well and then uh, they'll be harvested from the pond and that's pretty much when they get sorted graded by color of course because they're tropical fish for the aquarium trade and then either sold directly to the retailer or to the consumer depends on the strategy of the farmer or to a wholesaler which then of course sends it to a retailer for the consumer to pick and that is a very, very generalized verbal schematic, if you will. Or...
2: I think a lot of people would be interested to know that we actually grow a lot of our tropical fish in ponds outside. just Yeah. Is that why it's big in Florida because we have the weather to allow them outside?
1: Absolutely. That is the number one thing. You know, most of these fish are from Southeast Asia, South America. We do look at native Florida species as well, and there's kind of a push for that, which are pretty cool. Some of those native fish are very beautiful. But yeah, it's the weather here. We're warm. And actually, you know, we still have to cover the ponds during the wintertime because we are actually subtropical or not quite tropical climate here. So it does get cold enough to kill some of these fish from time to time. So we have to cover them like a greenhouse with plastic during the winter just to keep them warm. But like I said, a lot of these guys that do this are third, almost fourth generation fish farmers within the state of Florida. And so this is all they know is how to grow fish. And they're really good at it. So some of these fish can be kind of tricky to grow. And, uh, you know, we're oftentimes like, how'd you do that? I mean, it's amazing how good these guys are. But like I said, it's third or fourth generation. That's how they were raised. And they're really good at it.
2: Where are the majority of the tropical fish farmers located in Florida?
1: So most of them are Hillsborough County and Polk County and Miami-Dade.
2: So central and south.
1: Yeah. And that's because this infrastructure was developed back in, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. It is a bit of work to excavate a ornamental fish pond. So but it still happens, but most of the farms are bought and sold amongst themselves now. So that infrastructure was developed to be near airports because a lot of these fish are shipped you know, to the United States or beyond. And so the proximity to an airport is important for the pond so that they can uh, deliver their fish in an appropriate manner. But yeah, the Miami-Dade ponds are a little different. They're actually carved out of the limestone down there. It's really, really pretty neat to see.
2: So what are some of the challenges facing the ornamental fish industry right now?
1: Well, you know, competition from imports is always challenging for our industry. Like I said, a lot of these fish are native to other areas, particularly Southeast Asia. And production there is much greater for some of these species. We've had some import issues due to the lack of international travel here recently because of covid so that's actually helped the ornamental fish farmers here in the state of florida because that import source has gone down or import competition has gone down but it'll be back right and people are going to start traveling again and so that's probably the primary issue affecting ornamental fish production within the state of florida
2: Describe the technology and innovation in that industry. And maybe this is where we are now and this is where we were five years ago, or maybe this is where we were 20 years ago. Because I don't know how quickly things change in your industry.
1: That's a great question. I love this question because we're actually at a pretty interesting point in our development. You know, technology is growing leaps and bounds, right? So there's a couple of different avenues, I think. How the farmers, particularly when we're talking about these third or fourth generation farmers, that... Are much more efficient and savvy at utilizing technological advances that are social media and online and all those sort of things. I don't even know because I (laughs) I can't even name them, right? I mean, I'm old now compared to some of these guys. So that would be under under marketing, right? Their their ability to market some of these fish directly to the consumer, I think, is going to be more and more of a trend, particularly with the younger guys. Another trend also is utilizing the pond technology and utilizing that outdoor technology is what's called extensive aquaculture because it's outdoors. It's in, the, it's in the natural sort of farm environment it's outside, right? A lot of technology is moving towards intensive systems, reusing the water in a recirculating aquaculture system. It has minimal discharge. You have lower water use than you would in a pond system or an extensive flow-through system. And so a lot of the guys are moving towards that sort of recirculated aquaculture system technology because it's more cost efficient nowadays and also it's more environmentally efficient as well. So
2: what are some of the consumer trends that are driving that industry?
1: Wow, yeah, that, <laughs> that is a great question. And if you know the answer, please let me know so that I can tell the farmers. We never know. It's hard to know what the hobbyist is going to want. You know, it's not like food aquaculture where it tends to have some longevity to it, right? You know, snapper and grouper are always going to taste good. I had halibut last night. So fish kind of have a small window. Like tilapia is always going to probably be popular as a fish. The ornamental trade is a little different because there's... Ebb's and flows within the hobby trade, and so what the consumer wants is is kind of odd to figure out. Nano tanks have been very popular in the past. Of course, I say that now, and it's, it's hard to know what the consumer wants. But nano tanks are pretty popular. So nano tanks are really small, almost cube shaped. So smaller fish to go inside of them. They have small shrimp, and small environments are very popular, or they were a year or two ago. Who knows if they still are now? <laughs>
2: I'd be curious because I know one of the things about fish tanks and having them in your house is it lowers your anxiety and your blood pressure. And, you know, with people being home so much so last year, I, I mean, we have a fish tank and we've had one for two years now, but we sure did increase our fish. Like we went to the store, bought more just so we'd have <laughs> something else to look at while we were in lockdown.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I said, the ornamental fish industry did very well last year because of the pandemic, because of the lack of competition from imports, but also because people are sitting at home setting up fish tanks, which is really cool. Yeah. I mean, most people actually do have fish tanks. And don't kind of think about it too much. Uh, they're kind of a low maintenance pet, if you will. But the whole pet industry did well last year because all pets got love last year. So it was great.
2: Yeah. Well, in our poor fish tank, we ended up getting a lot of ick in our tank and that was devastating.
1: Yeah. That's one of the things that we've talked about here at the lab is, you know, trying to make the pet owner a little better at it because what happens you know oftentimes you'll you'll get fish and they get sick just just what happened and you, and you get frustrated and then you put it away and you don't uh-huh. use it again because it got frustrated and i was helping a friend set up a fish tank and of course the first thing he did was bought the fish tank and then he threw the fish in there and they all died and then he comes to me and he goes what i do wrong i was like well you gotta you gotta let the biofilter build up and so mm-hmm. i helped him i got some good water and he's had that fish tank running for three years actually five years but yeah if you set them up correctly it, it actually kind of runs itself so
2: what are some things that you think that students need to learn that would be helpful for the next generation? So like 10 years from now, when these kids are wanting to get into the industry, what are some important things that they need to learn?
1: Well, I would definitely focus on recirculating aquaculture systems. I mean, extensive systems are always going to be around using ponds and using, you know, lease sites and offshore cages. Those things are always going to be around because they tend to be a little simpler and more cost efficient. But You know, recirculating aquaculture systems are more and more in this industry becoming used And understanding filtration components, understanding water quality. If you're not keeping good water, you're not doing aquaculture well. And so understanding water quality and the effects of different nutrients in the water and different parameters in the water, all the boring stuff that they don't want to do, that's really what they need to focus on. The biofiltration, nitrification, things like that. uh, Those are all super important. And then also, I always like to throw in the history understand where we were 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago, helps you understand where we're going to be in the future. Those are all really important things that I think are important for students to learn and also, you know, have fun with it. And that's one thing I love about this industry is most of the guys that are in it enjoy it because no one's going to get rich in aquaculture, right? I mean, there, there are obviously exceptions to that rule but you know there's like a saying if you want to make a million dollars in aquaculture start with two million so <laughs> everyone's in this industry because they love it and because they like fish they like working outside and so have fun and one when, when you're having fun all the learning and all the education is just going to come right along with it
2: so how did you get into your current job first off why did you decide to go work for uf ifas like in extension research kind of thing
1: okay so I didn't intend to. I like to think that most people's career trajectory is not what they intended, but maybe it is. I used to do research. So when I started working for UF IFAS, I was helping Leslie Sturmer in the claim industry. I was her program assistant, and then I went to grad school, and then I became her biological scientist, helping her do projects and things like that, whatever she wanted, needed done. At that point in time, I actually switched to the tropical aquaculture lab, which is where I'm at now, but I was still doing research on ornamental fish and specifically marine fish. My predecessor resigned in 2016, and then this position became open, so it went from 100% research to 100% extension once I got it, and it felt good. It felt like it was time. I was getting a little older. Research is hard on the mind and the body sometimes, and so uh, extension is really just teaching people about aquaculture at this point in time. It's kind of nice to have segued into that, but it's not what I intended. I didn't intend to do it. It it just sort of happened. Did you
2: not intend to get into the aquaculture industry or just not intend to do what you're currently doing?
1: Both. (laughs) You want to know why I got into aquaculture? I'll tell you why I got into aquaculture because I was over at Oregon state and I was working on a fishing boat and a friend of mine, he was running the oyster hatchery at Oregon State University, a Molluscan broodstock program, and he lost his technician, and he asked me if I would come help him for a little bit, and that was, oh my God, that was 22 years ago. I started doing it, decided I liked it, and that's when I decided I was going to go back to school and get my master's degree in aquaculture. So I was an oyster janitor, and that's how it started.
2: (laughs) So what is your undergrad in?
1: Just general marine biology.
2: Oh, but that's still... Yeah,
1: sort of. Great. It, it, yeah, I know. It, it's actually different. and But people in that, that aren't in that world don't know that. So, yeah.
2: Well, and as I've done this now, I've interviewed a couple people. And you're the first one that actually has a degree in what they were. I <laughs> mean, <laughs> <laughs> because we've had religious studies majors. We had... Yeah. Um, Free law. Like, it is interesting. And I I mean, I didn't go to school to be an ag teacher, and and then I became an ag teacher. So I just, it is interesting how people get to where they are because it's always a little bit different.
1: Yeah, I agree.
2: So, what is like your favorite part of your job, and what is the least favorite part of your job?
1: Mm. You know, I don't think about my job as like a job. So I think Mm -hmm. I would be doing some of this stuff anyway. That's kind of a lie. Like, if I won the lottery, I probably wouldn't do this. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy dealing with kids. I enjoy. Dealing with farmers, I enjoy solving problems. If there's an issue that's put to me, I enjoy the process of trying to solve a problem. I always tell my kids when they get frustrated, you know every problem has a solution. You just got to find it. You just got to figure out how to get to it. My least favorite thing, I guess, doing podcast interview for. Oh, for- you can't I wouldn't just-
2: say that. <laughs> <laughs> right, paperwork, you could go there. I'm
1: just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, my least favorite thing. How about driving? My job entails a lot of driving because I have to do site visits and visit farmers and things like that. People need to stop texting and driving. That needs to happen. So because it's very dangerous and I'm always like, put your phone down. I guess that would be it. Yeah, driving to the location because some of these guys are pretty far and I have to drive on I-4 and 75 and it can be harrowing sometimes. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to, to sit and talk to us about the aquaculture industry. I know it's an industry that a lot of people don't know about, and, and this podcast does go to all the states here. We appreciate you. Eric is also on our board of directors for Florida Agriculture in the Classroom, so been a great asset to us here, too. So thank you for doing this, and we really appreciate it.
1: You're welcome, and thank you for doing it. This is good, so people can learn about the different ag industries within the state. It's fantastic.
3: My name is Broderick Oxawala. I teach at Haines City High School. This will be my 13th year, I think, maybe a little longer. Was it, 13 or? 13 or
4: 14. 13 or like 14.
3: That. You start losing track. And I teach agri-science.
4: And my name is Caroline Oxawalla with a last name like Oxawalla. Yes, we are married. Yes, we work together. We both work at Haynes City High School. Brody usually teaches animal science, a little bit more the animal science side of things. And sometimes we both jump in on aquaculture, but we both teach a foundational course. And then usually in non-COVID years, I'm the aquaculture teacher. We've had to switch it up a little bit this year because of COVID.
2: What is your educational background? And if you have any extra training because you're doing the aquaculture or that kind of stuff?
3: my background i have a bachelor of science from usf i actually have an accounting degree so it was a little bit of a more of a unique path for me to get into teaching but we've had several trainings through basically professional development anytime we can kind of seek out places that have aquaculture we kind of try to visit those places and uh, learn from them
4: so, for me, aquaculture is a little bit more of a fit. I come from the zoological industry. So, I worked at SeaWorld Orlando for 10 years. Zookeeping was not my main function, although I did do zookeeping for the education department. I was a teacher within the education department at SeaWorld. So, it's really been awesome for me to be able to marry two of my loves, teaching and aquaculture, and share that with my students.
2: So tell me what a typical day looks like with the aquaculture program and even the ag program in general. Like how much time do you have to spend over and above and how much work do the students do to keep everything running?
3: Well, I will tell you that every day in ag or agriculture, which includes the aquaculture program, is a different day with its own problems. You might come in one day and, you know, the pH has spiked and the aquaculture tubs, well, then you have to do some you know, massive water changes. There could be anything from a zebu, which is one of our miniature cattle having a baby, to one of our goats being in labor. And just yesterday, we had to actually help assist the goat about six o'clock at night giving birth because the baby was stuck. So every day's a new adventure. We try to incorporate the students. We do some work inside because we have to teach them the fundamentals and what they're actually uh, learning, and how to keep things running correctly. But we pretty much use them to run this full-fledged farm.
4: Yeah, how to apply what we're learning in the classroom practically, hands-on. That's one of the things we really take to heart here in our program is giving kids lots of opportunities to have hands-on experience. And we try to mimic as much of what they would experience on a real farm whether it's more of a traditional agriculture farm or an aquaculture farm, we try to mimic what they would find with an employer out in the real world here at the high school.
2: And in your aquaculture program, what kind of stuff do you grow and raise? Because I hear you want to get an alligator on top of what you already are doing.
3: So what we started out with cichlids, tropical cichlids, we've done all kinds of things. We've done several different types of tropical cichlids, tilapia, which is a type of cichlid. We've done catfish. We have koi. We uh, do snails. We've pretty much have tried a little bit of everything when it comes to aquaculture.
4: Yeah, with animals, if a student comes to us and has an interest in learning more about something or culturing something, we will be able usually to provide the resources for that. We were approached by our students. I always get students asking me to get wild animals and they don't always think of you know the implications of oh you know the the equipment to keep care of this animal or just the level of maintenance on a day-to-day basis is pretty intense i've had kids ask you know for a stingray i've had kids ask for octopus i've had kids ask for sharks And sometimes those can be accommodated. Alligators are one that we may be able to bring into the future. We did get approval from our school board. We had a meeting with risk management. So they're on board. They love the idea as long as you know, we of course take the proper precautions. And we're not talking, you know, like a 20 foot beast. We're talking, you know, like a two foot baby alligator hatchling. So I would say that's definitely one of the more interesting animals that we may come to encounter on our farm. Another really big thing that we do here on our farm is we have a really large plant culturing program with our aquaculture classes. We grow some ornamental aquaculture plants for a nursery out of Plant City. So it's actually a really great cash crop for our farm and our program. It's very easy to maintain. The kids seem to enjoy the work. And that has worked out really well for us as well.
2: So do you sell your fish as well or the snails and whatnot that you were talking about? Or just
4: We have in the past. This year with COVID, we decided to keep things a little light as far as production, just because we didn't know what, you know, how many kids are going to be online, how many kids are going to be in person and everything is all over the place. But we have sold cichlids in the past. We have sold koi in the past. We've had kids do crayfish projects that they've sold in the past snails. So yeah, it's a production farm. We're selling product that we are producing here.
2: I love it. That's awesome. So why do you guys think it's important for people to know about and understand agriculture, especially here in Florida?
3: Well, as the kids are learning and we kind of help teach them, hardly anybody's going to go out and become a farmer because those days are a little bit done unless you are inherited with property or you just find that niche. You're not going to really be able to be a farmer, but to have an appreciation of what farming is, I think that's the most important thing. It's an awareness. So that way, when these students become voters or when they see what job they're in is predicated on farming or agriculture, they have an appreciation. Oh, this all makes sense.
2: It's funny that you said that about young people getting into the agriculture industry to become a farmer, because we just actually on our call earlier, we talked about how hard it is. If you want to be a first generation farmer, it's really hard. Land is really expensive. The equipment is expensive, especially with precision agriculture. But I like that.
4: Yeah, it's definitely cost prohibitive. And that's one of the things that we discuss with our students that we understand, like, like 99% of them are not going to have a job as a hands-on farmer. But as we all know, agriculture isn't just farmers. It's a blossoming industry. And we do have, we're very proud of the students that we have had that have stayed within the agricultural industry. And that's really a big part of the classroom too, is kind of just like opening up their eyes to some of the ideas within the agricultural industry as far as jobs go. Like For example, here in Polk County, we have Publix. Publix is an agricultural company. 99.9% Ninety-nine point nine percent of my students have never made that association, but it's an important one here. They're a huge employer here in Polk County,
3: and there's jobs like in the ag tech field, like working on tractors or just the science portion of it, like food science. Like people don't realize agriculture is getting those new flavor of Doritos and you know different Coke products, the vanilla Coke. Those are all food science that are agriculture related. One thing we really love about aquaculture, it's actually one of those. Industries where you can become a first generation farmer, because I think if you kind of unlock a code for a certain species, you learn how to develop them or you have something that nobody else has, then you can actually make a little bit of money off of that.
4: Yeah, niche farming is popular within aquaculture. If you can find something that maybe nobody else is doing or you're just doing it really, really well, that is kind of a way to get your foot in the door.
2: We did a industry video on aquaculture industry focusing on clams. I had no idea that the clam industry is as young as it is here in Florida. And so that is one of those ones where people kind of got into it because of, I believe, the way the fishing regulation. So yeah, that that is interesting about that part of agriculture. What is the best part of your job?
4: The best part of my job is watching the gears turn inside of my students' head When they make those connections between the products that they eat and use every single day and farming, there's such a disconnect now with the products that we use, the food that we eat, the things that we put on our body and our hair, the clothes that we wear, such a disconnect between teenagers and children and and the populace in general So it's awesome for me. My favorite part is just watching that click in their head of, oh my gosh, that's what that product is made of. Oh my gosh, that's how they make that. That's where that comes from. That's one of my favorite parts is just watching them learn.
3: I think my favorite part is like putting the actual animal in the student's hands. I mean, like getting a student inside of an aquaculture tub and, you know, they feel the fish around on their feet or like we had some miniature horses and we taught them how to walk miniature horses. I'll never forget, like five years ago, a kid came in the next day just after walking a horse. He said, it was like walking on a rainbow. And and it's (laughs) like, it's just something that it just gives them this little bright light that, you know, school can be hard. So we're that fun class that makes kids want to come to school. So then the other core classes, you know, they kind of benefit off of the kid says, Hey, I can't miss ag because I'm having so much fun. You know, I better do good in these other classes as well.
2: I love it. Too bad you did not have a video of that. That would have been like the best, like most inspirational oh, yeah. like poster video. Yeah. Um, so what changes in your classroom when you use the food and the agriculture to teach things like the student's response and you kind of just, Talked about it, but do you see that click, that light, the better understanding?
4: Yeah, I would say with some of them, some of them really respond well to getting outside of the actual physical classroom and going outside. Our farm, our land lab on our farm and our school is an extension of the classroom. So that really changes the dynamic of how we're interacting with them. It makes things hands-on, and it also gives them some responsibility. They know that if they you know, didn't do something, they didn't refill hay, they didn't refill water, they didn't feed an animal appropriately or do something correctly, that that's on them. And ultimately, it's on all of us here on our farm to take care of the animals here. So I would say they definitely respond to responsibility and just hands-on interaction.
3: Well, and also we can do so much cross-curricular content, you know, kind of mix all that in. In math class, they might be learning about volume. Well, they can actually take that equation and bring it and then measure how much water is actually in our aquaculture tanks. You know, instead of just learning about slope, they actually can come and say, okay, what is the slope of this pasture? So that way the rain runs off. So it's actually more of a hands-on and they can actually connect like this is actually real world stuff. So and then we kind of give them that agriculture allows you to use those core classes and then kind of manipulate it and say, hey, this is how you use it in real life.
4: Yeah, definitely a practical application opportunity.
2: Why do you two take this extra initiative to do all the extra projects and include agriculture in such a diverse offering?
4: The connection that we make with our students, some of our students, especially our FFA members and our FFA officers really become a family. And we are able to track these kids past graduation, well into college, and some of them are now starting to get into their own careers. It's definitely full circle watching them, the skills that they learn here. You know, they don't necessarily have to be agriculture related. A lot of what we're working on is like soft skills, like people skills, like how to work with each other, how to work together. That's so important in the workplace.
3: My short answer would be that I think we're a little crazy. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Definitely. pretty.
3: And like you said, we get joy out of it. And uh, it's a rewarding, fun job. So,
2: And you're in it together.
3: That's right. Yeah. She was part of my menagerie that I brought in as I was building the farm. I said I needed one more final piece. So I brought her in and then that's how we got the perfect farm.
2: That's awesome. So why did you guys become educators?
3: I kind of always wanted to be an educator when growing up, but I kind of had, you know, some advice where people were like, you don't want to do that. You know, there's no money in it. So that's why I went the accounting route. And I did that until my 30s and the money is better there. But if you're not happy, I don't think it's worth it. So for me, and I try to tell the kids this, but, you know, everybody's a little different. But to me, being happy in what you do and having fulfillment, I think is the most important part.
4: Definitely. Definitely. I got into education because I love learning. If I could be a professional college student, I definitely would. I love learning. I love teaching. I love learning from my students. I learn from them every day. Teaching is a two-way road. You know, some students are under the misinterpretation that, you know, teachers are the only ones that are teaching. We learn things from our kids every single day. And I love learning with them. I love, like I said before, that light bulb just going off in their head when they make a connection. It's so rewarding to know that you're a part of that.
2: Even the younger kids, I have a seven and or almost seven year old and a, an eight year old, and they ask me questions all the time. I'm like, that is a great question. I never like kids and students just look through different eyes than we do as an adult. So yeah, I get that. That's awesome.
4: Definitely. Luckily, nowadays, we have Google, you know, <laughs> Mom, ask the Google.
2: <laughs> How does teaching agriculture connect your students to their potential future careers? I know we touched on that a little bit. But.
3: Well, I mean, agriculture is so broad. I remember one of my students who uh, went on to become a hairdresser or work in a uh, hair salon. Well, we use chemicals to test the water for pH and ammonia, and nitrite, and she got used to actually like mixing different chemicals together to do the test. You know, she came back later and said, "This really helped me in my job because you know I figured out like you know I wasn't afraid to actually mix things together and come out with different solutions." So we see it like people come back all the time. They're like, you know, the lessons I learned just from showing this animal, it helped me because I have confidence now. And public speaking is one of our biggest things that we do. So if you can public speak or you can talk to people, you can do anything.
4: Absolutely. Public speaking is huge. Like I mentioned before, those soft skills, those people skills, how to get along with coworkers, even when you don't get along. That is such a valuable thing that you can take and use in any job field, no matter what it is. That's definitely a big connection to any career, even outside of agriculture.
3: And I think being project-based, you know, with a farm, you're always project-based. So, you know, any job they're going to get in the future, they know that like, I have to get this project done or there will be ramifications. If we don't feed the farm, all the animals die. So I think that, I mean, that's an extreme case, but that's kind of like they get that sense of this is what we have to do.
2: I love that answer. Do you want to share what your worst part of your job is? Sure. I
4: would say the worst part about our job is when something happens here on the farm, unexpected, say like an animal has a health issue. Sometimes that kind of correlates with stuff going on, you know, like family gatherings, situations, because we are married with our own children. So, you know, sometimes you kind of feel torn as like a parent or a member of a family and someone taking care of this farm. Anytime an animal has a major medical issue, especially if that, you know, results in the death of the animal, that can be really difficult. It's actually more difficult for me to watch my students deal with the emotions and the trauma of dealing with an animal death than for me, myself personally. I do think it is an important lesson for them to learn though that you know, sometimes animals die and it's okay. You learn from it and you move on.
3: I would say the worst part, which is also some of the most enjoyable parts is the time. Like I said, recently I got <laughs> up at 12 o'clock at night went down and checked on a goat to make sure she was okay. When she was in labor, that's a pretty common occurrence where we'll get a phone call from somebody that says, Hey, there's something going on. I saw it over the fence. And then we'll come down in the middle of the night and then they'll just be sleeping. But you know, <laughs> it, it's one of those things where these animals are here and the animals and the op culture, it kind of helps the program and we do it so that way the kids are you know, get enjoyment from the program. It's not just book work all the time mm-hmm. in theory, it's actually hands-on. So it's a lot of work, but I think it's enjoyable work. So it's kind of a best worst scenario. It's a
4: double-edged sword. We make a lot of work for ourselves. Yeah.
2: I think that's very typical. and, And anybody that's doing what they really love to do. I mean, we add jobs to ourselves here all the time just because we love what we do. How do you see agriculture help achieve curricular goals? How did your agriculture program help your students be more successful even in their other classrooms or other subject areas?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. So because our ag program is a nationally accredited career academy, we have cohorts with all four academic subjects. So we have teachers here on campus who we all share the same students. So we can share information about those students if they're having difficulties in general or something going on. As Brody said before, we have a lot of cross-curricular projects that are specifically designed to help students work on the skills that they need to do better on for things like writing, like in English, we have them do some crossover lessons with like, we've done a poisonous plant lesson when they were learning about like poison and Romeo and Juliet and having them write about it. So really bringing other academic subjects into our classroom and using those practical applications.
3: Yeah, I mean, we pretty much have to be creative because we even had an English teacher that was teaching Jane Austen. So we just- decided to do a Victorian garden you know so and kids had to research what that time pretty was like in our class and it kind of helped relate you know to them in their English class and so therefore they had better stuff to write about
2: I love that I appreciate you guys taking the time out to, to talk with me today it, it definitely sounds like you guys stay busy so I really appreciate it
3: um, yeah, you're welcome yeah, thank you
0: sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, our website and our Facebook page. For more information on the Agriculture in the Classroom programs in your local area, visit agclassroom.org. Remember to subscribe to Outstanding in Their Field on your favorite podcast streaming service and visit the show notes to learn more. For now, thanks for listening and stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field.